You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Ronnie Quinn. This week. It's terrible to move ahead with something that looks like a partisan prosecution, but it's also terrible to let a president get away with crimes. Jonathan Bernstein on the progress of the House January 6th committee. And later, a look at China's economic woes with Julie Wren and Tim Culpin. First, people might be coming back to big cities post-pandemic. One thing that never went away, though, and is in fact proliferating even more post-pandemic, big box apartment buildings. I spoke to Justin Fox about housing, renting and all the problems associated with. So Justin, mortgage rates finally topped 6%. So I imagine there's going to be a lot more renters out there. Is it a question of supply and demand as to how prices go? I mean, clearly, we've been switching to more people renting versus owning over the past 10 or 15 years. And I think right now, yeah, I, I, if somebody who was looking to buy a house with a mortgage is suddenly going to be a much different situation. So there'll probably be more demand to rent both houses and apartments. The thing is, in New York City, and I imagine other large cities, pandemic rents meant that it was possible for artists and people who didn't make a whole lot of money to move into the city. Are they all now being pushed out of the city, the ones that had the courage to move? Yeah, and I don't know that there were all that many people who did that or thought that the lower rents would stick forever, but definitely rents went up in all of these suburban areas and in cities like Boise, and those have settled down some, but cities where they fell a lot, especially in New York, they've come careening back up. We're hearing stories about the median price increase being 25%, 30%. There are base effects involved. These are obviously now 25% above pre-pandemic rents, but it's a different city as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of demand to rent apartments. I guess there were some people who thought in the depths of the pandemic in 2020 that no one would ever want to live in a city again, but that's not what's happened. Which brings me to one of your recent columns about big boxy apartment buildings, which really, I guess, went out of style during the pandemic because you were breathing in everybody else's air. There was a lot of people walking in and out of the buildings and so on. I mean, I don't know. I don't think they ever went out of style, but definitely you would have thought they would have given all the rhetoric against cities and apartment buildings and all. And, you know, for a couple months there in 2020, as someone who lived in an apartment building, it, you know, it would have been nice not to have to share the air with everyone else. Well, you looked into the data and apparently they're actually getting more and more plentiful, in fact. 
Yeah, there's this great annual data release from the Census Bureau that is sort of my favorite data release, and I've seen it be the only person <laughs> who has in a favorite data release who who looks out for it because it's got all these great things like how many fireplaces there are in new houses and how many bedrooms and bathrooms. One of the things they keep track of is just housing units completed by the size of the building in multifamily apartment buildings. And something kind of remarkable happened last year that more apartments were built in buildings of 50 units or more than ever before in U.S. history. 214,000. 214,000. Are we talking about across the United States? Across the U.S. Where mostly? The South is overall where most construction is happening. So just about half were in the South. And then a lot in the West and less in the Midwest and a bunch in the Northeast. What's the impetus for these big buildings? Part of it is that there's been an increase in demand for apartments, partly because of this slight switch away from ownership since the financial crisis that will now get sort of a renewed boost with high mortgage rates. Also, it's that in big metropolitan areas, there's limited space on which to build. It's often close to commercial districts because you're less likely to have NIMBY homeowners saying, don't build an apartment building there. And increasingly, the development of apartment buildings is sort of driven by these big institutional actors. And you know, for them, it's not worth it to build a couple of duplexes. They need to build big projects. So what you get is these larger buildings. And I mean, another aspect is this change in building codes and adaptation by builders to it has resulted in this specific kind of building, mostly called the five over one, which is five, usually five stories of wood framed building over a bottom floor of concrete. And it can be Sometimes it's six over two. There are variants. They're not allowed in New York City. But in other cities and suburbs all across the country, that's the form that most of these buildings are taking. Who taking. knew that's what they were called? Five over one or six over two? I presume these I, are... I prefer to call them stumpies, but that hasn't really caught on. <laughs> rents for these buildings are not exactly cheap. I and mean, we're talking about median rents plus for many of these buildings. They're well, considered almost luxury buildings. They're often marketed as luxury buildings. I mean, mostly that just means stainless steel appliances. They're not, it's like they're not that luxurious. It's just that's how you market these things. Very often they're at higher rents than some surrounding buildings, but I think overall the evidence is you build more stuff like this and it it puts some downward pressure on prices. Now, how did the pandemic affect builders that were building these apartments? Because I guess building was one of the things that didn't really shut down. It kept going. after. Yeah, I mean, it shut down for a couple of months Mm. in some places, and in some places it didn't at all. I mean, one thing about this is it takes a while to get a large apartment building built. So all these buildings that were being completed in 2021, I think the majority of them were actually, they got the permits and, and it was in the works before the pandemic. And there actually was a dip in permits for the first six months or so of the pandemic. But then... Since late 2020, the permits have skyrocketed, and it looks like if you go by the, it takes like 19 months or so to get one of these buildings built, they're going to set another record in 2023. And there are people to live in all of these. I guess so. I mean, part of it is, you know, with the lead time, they may be opening all these new buildings into a weak market if there's a recession. 
but maybe not. I mean, it does seem like, for the most part, they're able to fill them all up. You have a great chart here, housing permits issued for Alston Round Rock in 2021. More than 25,500. But I guess we are seeing a lot of companies build new headquarters in other cities. Right. I mean, moved. Austin's booming, Nashville's booming, Salt Lake City's booming. What's just interesting is that traditionally these booming cities, and this is still true of like Atlanta, Dallas, Houston, the vast majority of that new housing is single family. But increasingly what's happening in even inland metro areas is what's happened a while on the coast is that almost all the construction that's happening is apartment buildings because there's either just too much opposition or these places just can't sprawl any farther out. Justin Fox. The House January 6th committee is several public hearings into its investigation of the attack on the Capitol 17 months ago. I spoke with Jonathan Bernstein about what we've discovered so far. We just literally heard that we might actually be getting more hearings than we originally thought because there are new pieces of evidence available to the committee. What's the outlook, Jonathan? What happens after recess? Well, apparently after recess, they're going to have at least two more, but they may schedule more after that. And, you know, I hate to do and I told you so, but I've been screaming for months that one of the reasons to get to the hearings is because hearings themselves may produce additional evidence. And apparently that's what happened. We so, spoke about that on this program. At this point, they're really starting to hit a hard deadline because they have to write the report, which is somewhat important, but all they have is the end of this Congress to do it, and we're going into election season. As we get closer to the midterms, it becomes increasingly difficult for them to put these hearings on without acting as if they are electioneering. And part of the importance of this is to try to appeal to people who will be turned off by electioneering. So but there is some suggestion out there, Jonathan, that if there were to be delaying tactics, we might reach into the next Congress, there'd be a different speaker, and that might change things. I mean, is that a possibility? Well, if we assume that Republicans will take over the majority in the next Congress, which certainly seems very likely, it's impossible to imagine, basically, a Republican majority Congress continuing anything of this stuff. So realistically, they've got till the end of the year, and I think it's unlikely that they'll come back in September and do further public hearings. So really, they just have the end of July until the August recess, unless there's something so spectacular that they feel they have to do it. They do have the option of coming back in a lame duck session after the election, but again, they have to write a report. So I think that they're really in a time crunch and the impetus will be to get this done. Well, we have had four public hearings. We'll have X amount more. We have heard from people that were completely anonymous before the hearings. Has the committee done a good job so far? I think given the parameters they set for themselves of having a small number of hearings starting this late, I think that they've done an excellent job. A couple things in particular, the restraint the members have shown. You know, they're having just the chair and Representative Cheney, the vice chair, speak in each hearing. But outside of that, just one member is designated to interview entire panels. And in fact, on the Tuesday edition, we had you know Adam Schiff interviewing both panels. Every other member sits there like a stone, doesn't say anything. That's a really hard thing to get members of Congress to agree to do on something which is a major publicity opportunity. The other thing they've done extremely well is using video using physical evidence, tweets and documents and all that, and coordinating that with questioning in a way that makes the presentations very compelling television. What were the most salient facts uncovered so far, Jonathan? 
You know, I think that while there have been some specific facts that have been uncovered, for example, they really emphasize the extent to which people told Donald Trump that he lost the election. So there's been some progress on digging out specifics. But I think what's most important is the overview and telling things, some of which we learned as early as before January 6th. You know, his call pressuring Georgia officials and other state legislative officials, but putting it all in one piece, explaining how all of the different pieces of what Trump and his allies were doing added up to an attempt to, put it bluntly, overthrow the government. Which doesn't mean that it's actually going to impact anything in the future when it comes to the former president running again or even having an impact on the primaries. So far, it certainly doesn't seem like there's been any negative influence on the primaries. You know, I mean, Trump has not had a particularly good primary season during these midterm primaries, but I wouldn't credit the January 6th investigation particularly. I think it is possible that the events of January 6th in the first place may have turned some people off from Trump. Mm. But I think that what the hearings can do in terms of the audiences that they have, some Republicans who may have been willing to go along with Trump but weren't real comfortable with that may be affected. That won't necessarily affect primary elections this year, but long term, it may have some consequences for his influence within the party. Um, I think also, to the extent that it changes press coverage going forward, the one attentive group is the media itself and people in the media who think of themselves as neutral, pounding it into them that being neutral about these things includes accepting the truth of what Trump actually tried to do. Well, the other thing is we still don't have firm evidence tying Trump exactly to violence or groups that were violent that day. Do the details really matter? We still don't have firm evidence tying Trump to violence or groups that were violent that day. Do the details really matter? They may matter for prosecution and what exactly he can be prosecuted for. One of the audiences here is the Justice Department. Mm. And the thing about violence is it's complicated, right? Mm. By the time that we get to January 6th, it's clear that the way Trump talks about things has consequences in terms of violence and threats of violence. And I think it's pretty clear that Trump knew or should have known by this point that his words and the words of his allies had these consequences. Now, for legal purposes, that may not be good enough, but there is something different between that and if there may have been more direct contact between Trump and some of these organized groups. We know, you know, that Trump said to one of the organized groups in a national debate, you can't get a more public thing than a presidential debate, that they should stand by, you know, when he was asked to condemn them. So, you know, you can draw lines here, but how deeply the lines should be shaded We still don't know if there's more to come. Well, and Chair Benny Thompson has said that there is footage from a documentarian, Alex Holder, who had access to the Trump family before and after January 6th. So we don't know what's going to come out of that. What would the Justice Department need more of in order to prosecute Donald Trump? Well, two things. One is, do they feel like there's public pressure to move ahead on this without seeming partisan? And again, I think that the attorney general is very hesitant to move forward with anything that could look like a partisan prosecution of a former president and current presidential candidate. And rightly so. He should be very hesitant. It's an impossible conundrum for the Justice Department because it's terrible to move ahead with something that looks like a partisan prosecution. But it's also terrible to let a president get away with crimes. Um, yeah, the it's, best it sounds solution crazy to this, when you say it like that. Yeah. Then... 
There's the legal side of things, which is how open and shut a case do they have on some of these charges? And there's discussion within sort of appellate law Twitter and and bloggers and, and columnists about what matters in terms of Trump's state of mind for some of these charges and what exactly is needed to make good these prosecutions. Because option one of convicting him and option two of not charging him are bad, but option three of bringing him to trial and having him declared not guilty, that's worse. Jonathan Bernstein there. Turning east now and specifically to China, where President Xi Jinping this week criticized the impact of sanctions for causing global economic pain. Also this week, President Xi warned of hunger and he ordered more pro-growth policies to boost China's COVID-battered economy. Shuli Ren joins now for some perspective on the Chinese consumer. Surely, President Xi sounds concerned about his people. How badly is the Chinese consumer suffering right now? I mean, if you just look at the youth unemployment rate at the periodic consumer sentiment survey, it's the lowest on record. Youth unemployment has already hit 18%. 18%? Yes, it's going to tick higher because college graduates are going to graduate in a month or so. Yes. So we're going to see basically one in four or five young people aged between 16 and 24 unemployed. How did that happen, Shuli? We know that inflation hasn't been a problem, but how is unemployment such a problem in China? Well, a lot of it was the big tech and the real estate developer crackdown. I mean, the tech sector employed a lot of people, especially young people, right? So that's a big chunk. And also because of the COVID lockdowns, I mean, the big tech companies also hired a lot of gig economy workers, food delivery workers, drivers. And these people don't have any jobs right now. Do they have social security benefits or any kind of income coming in? So very little, to be honest. And that's something very interesting about China. Even though it claims to be a communist country, there is very little social security net. And the President Xi Jinping is definitely not into this notion called the welfare state. He basically adheres this ideology called production first and then living next. So what China has done is that they are giving subsidies to factories and say, oh, you know, like if you just keep those workers, we're going to give you some tax rebates. And they're not very many, to be honest. So there's no talk of stimulus check and there's very little unemployment check, to be honest. I think in 2020, about 60 million people lost their jobs. Only 2 million managed to claim unemployment. Wow, that is a serious, serious black mark on the Chinese economy. Now, President Xi Jinping, he has an ego. He wants to hold himself upright in the world. How does he allow this unemployment rate continue to be the case? If it's 18% for youth, what is it overall? Overall, urban unemployment is a little bit shy of 7%. A lot of it is because if you are like 40, 50 year old, chances are you work for state-owned enterprises and they don't lay off workers, right? So a lot of the tension is intergenerational. Young people are struggling, whereas you are 40, 50 year old, you are doing a little bit better. But still, you will have children who are young, right? So youth unemployment is the biggest problem right now. President Xi has been talking about going easier on the tech sector and also fintech reforms and reforms in other areas and that the economy is almost ready to incorporate those reforms and allow these companies operate again. Would that be a bright sign for employment? Yes, that will be. That's an early stage of uh, perhaps an unemployment recovery. We don't have a complete statistics, but uh, just according to surveys, the tutoring sector, it used to hire about 17% of fresh college graduates. And that sector was completely wiped out because of the tax crackdown, right? Mm. So the government is trying, but it's not going to be like what it used to be.
No. You point out that a record 10.8 million college graduates will be fresh out this summer and there are no jobs for them right now. I mean, that will lead to social unrest if it continues, correct? I think the government is surely very worried. The thing is, the way China sees unemployment, for migrant workers, they always feel like, okay, you can always go back to your countryside and go farm. They were never that worried about migrant workers' unemployment. They feel like, you know, the land is their employment ultimately. Mm. But for young, fresh college graduates, it's a problem because they're quite educated and they're frustrated. And we have seen what happened in the Middle East and other parts of the world. China is very worried right now. And China has a great reputation in the tech sector, in semiconductors, in all sorts of areas, and you would have imagined that China would be able to put them to work. Tell us about what you call gold, silver and copper babies. So Chinese schools can be very harsh. I mean, I went to the Chinese system from very early on. They rank us by our grade and then divide you into gold, silver, and copper. So the gold babies, they are the ones who can go to Tsinghua and Beijing University. And they are the next generation engineers that can design China's world-class chips or EV autopaths. And then the copper babies, they tend to be migrant workers' children. So they will do more gig economy work and perhaps low-end manufacturing, construction work. The big chunk, basically, we're talking about two-thirds now because China's middle class is getting bigger, Mm. are the so-called silver babies. They are okay students, not stellar, but now most of those silver babies, they are getting college education as well. China's college attendance rate is close to 60%. In the U.S., it's only 40%. And these silver babies, yeah, they don't want to go work in factories anymore. Mm. Their parents did. And then they are not good enough to design the next generation chips. So China doesn't know what to do with them. And all these silver babies, they want to go work for their own enterprises or work for the government. But the government is paring back its own employment as well. The government knows SOEs are bloated, too bloated. Everyone's just sitting around doing nothing, right? And then the silver babies, they used to go to the tech sector a lot. And now the tech sector is not hiring because of the crackdown. These are the big problems. Julie Wren there. By the way, do get in touch. Comments and opinions always welcome. I'm at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or email vquinn at Bloomberg.net. China's COVID zero approach has been controversial. Communist Party slogans evoke maximum results achieved with minimum cost. But some of that cost is in the form of economic growth. Economists in a Bloomberg survey forecast GDP will expand at a 4.5% rate this year, a full percentage point below the official target. There's a wide range of forecasts, though. Bank of America says in a worst-case scenario, were there to be, for example, citywide lockdowns beyond Beijing, growth would weaken to 2.5%. I chatted with Tim Culpin, who lives in Taipei, Taiwan, to weigh the pluses and minuses. So, Tim, the Chinese government has come under a lot of fire for its COVID zero policy, and clearly there's a lot of suffering in China because of it. At the same time, as far as we know, there are far fewer deaths than there have been around the world. How do we measure how good or bad the policy is? You know what? The, one of the, the toughest things for any national leader, whether it's in, uh, in China or the US or in Australia or in, or in England or, or Taiwan, is that nobody's really appreciated for the efforts they've done. And you also, now in kind of mid-2022, you have to look at COVID very differently to early 2020. We have Omicron, which spreads a lot more quickly, and there's debate about whether it's less or more severe, but certainly medical practitioners know how to handle it better. And we've got vaccinations, which makes the impact of it much more mild. And I think the struggle for China is they're still in the early 2020 mindset. 
but we're in a mid-2022 healthcare situation. And they believe in COVID zero, whereas other places have lightened up. And in fact, are just across the waters in Taiwan, where I'm based. Taiwan has basically given up on COVID zero. They're not too worried about it, whereas they stuck to COVID zero until earlier this year. And healthcare authorities in Taiwan basically felt, well, you know, we're, we're mostly vaxxed, more than 90% vaxxed and, and quite a high booster rate. And so we're willing to ease up and accept the trade-off of, you know, more freedom to move around and so forth while still keeping masking policies, for example, in Taiwan. China is not willing to do that, and that's the decision they've made, and it's impacted the way Chinese people view the government. Well, that's just the thing. Will it backfire on Xi Jinping? It does seem that people have got a little more vocal than you might have expected Chinese people to get in recent weeks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think there's a misunderstanding that you know Chinese people are, are all very compliant and do whatever the government tells them. It's, it's really not the case. You know, in private discussions and even on social media, people have very strong opinions about the government, but they're also very aware of kind of how far they can push it. And they're aware of the consequences if, if they say something that's too outlandish. And unfortunately for, for Chinese people, those goalposts do move quite a lot. But there is a big difference to the way people felt about the government's handling of Wuhan two years ago. When Wuhan was, you know, locked down in, in January 2020. And we saw what happened there. And, and at that time, the government even denied that there was a problem. And we had the doctor who, who died, who was a martyr, unfortunately, to the cause, who'd raised alarm bells and was even criticized by the government for doing so. That is a very different thing to, to today. Recently in Shanghai, we've seen this lockdown happen. We've seen a, a large kind of groundswell of, of backlash. And I think the difference is people believe that the lockdown is not necessary, that COVID zero is not necessary today, whereas they kind of accepted that it might have been necessary in Wuhan two years ago. And so what is happening now in China is more and more Chinese people are, are thinking that this was not necessarily good decision-making by the Communist Party in Shanghai. And they, they feel that maybe there's poor judgment by the central leadership this time, whereas last time they didn't like it, but they kind of understood why it was needed. And that's the real difference. Well, some of the final judgment will depend on the growth figures, a far cry from the 5.5% that the Chinese government had set out as its goal. Is that effectively the rest of the world's recession? Yeah, but, you know, it's it's not a small economy, right? It's mm. the world's second largest economy. And so at some point, China and the world has to accept that it's not, you know, emerging market economy, but developed market economy and you have to really reorient the way you think of of the country but at the end of the day we we love gdp we love unemployment inflation they're the kind of the big three statistics that we look at but not all gdp growth is created equal right so what the chinese government has to think about is is this going to the right people and to the chinese government's credit they have this new concept of a common prosperity we haven't heard about it as recently in the last few months it was a big talking point in 2021 but the idea is that all this growth that china has experienced and all this wealth that's being created in china hasn't been distributed fairly mm. across society from city to city as well as within you know the various echelons of society so if the Chinese government is willing to accept a slower growth rate, but it's better distributed, costs are still kept under control, and people still feel they've got a roof over their head, they've got food on their table, they've got stability, then it won't be a problem. However, if 
that slower growth rate and there is inflation that goes with it or other issues such as in unemployment or uh, you know housing collapse things like that then definitely people are going to be more and more annoyed and you can't eat statistics, as, as my colleague Shuli Ren wrote recently. And that's something that I think Xi Jinping will need to remember. And we know that as far back as six months ago, Xi Jinping, and we only found out about it recently, Xi Jinping was warning about the dangers of mass joblessness. We didn't know that at the time, but it was clearly high up on his priority list that that should not happen. Yes, exactly. In fact, we've seen an incredible about face in the last six months when they started to realize, I guess, that you know, a slowdown was a very real possibility. And remembering we've got uh, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which is, is definitely a headwind. We've got you know, rising interest rates and all the other things that are happening around the world. And those will either indirectly or directly impact the Chinese economy. And unemployment is definitely something that no government wants to see. But certainly in China, if you've got more and more people out of work, they're not going to be happy. So we're seeing these efforts by the government to juice the economy. And one of those is to implore companies not to you know, lay off workers to, to keep unemployment under control, because that definitely has an impact on you know, first order and second order effects on the economy. But then there's the danger of the Japan model where you have people employed just for employment's sake, and that's not good long term for an economy either. That is, you know what, you're right. There is definite concern that there could be kind of a lost decade like Japan has faced. And that's something the government needs to focus on, is surely aware of. We've gone through this incredible cycle of innovation in China over the last 10, 20 years, and they want more of that innovation. Now, the last you know 10 or 15 years of that has been very much the internet economy, Alibaba, Tencent. Baidu is not where it used to be, but JD.com, Meituan, all these companies that are coming forward, the platform economy is really what it's called, has brought a lot of innovation, employs a lot of people, not just as coders and programmers, but it's allowed people to be you know, delivery drivers and all sorts of other things. People can be merchants from their own home selling mm. stuff online. And so that's been a very, very innovative part of the economy. It's been very important to Chinese growth over the last decade. But... China decided they want to crack down on that. They didn't want these platforms to have as much power and they started cracking down and limiting the way these companies could use their power, their data, their user base to kind of further themselves. So I think the real challenge there is for China to balance these issues of allowing these companies to still grow and innovate, but also kind of holding them back, reining them in so they don't have too much power. And by reining them in too much, they could really risk the possibility that economic growth will suffer as a result. And these are the companies that are hiring and hiring well-paid workers. You and know. we do seem to be seeing a small bit of an about-face, so the clampdown is just easing very, very slightly. I do want to ask you, though, about the supply chain issue, because more and more countries are deciding that they need supply chains domestically. They need to not depend on China solely for their raw materials. You're right. You're right. That's a big issue. And you don't have to be in the anti-China camp mm. to realize it's not smart to have all of your product coming from one place, right? Whether it's semiconductors, uh, which is mostly based in Taiwan, the high-end level, or uh, electronics manufacturing, which is mostly in China, especially southern China, but also around the Shanghai area, and so many other things. You know, textiles are concentrated in some parts of the world. All sorts of things are concentrated in China. And I think because of the Cold War, the tech Cold War or the neo-Cold War, which kind of came to the fore under President Trump, but was already brewing, people have realized that, uh, wow, 
we depend on China for a lot of our stuff. And then with COVID and the lockdowns and the, the problems of getting you know workers into factories, and now the bigger problem is not so much factories, but the logistics, trucks being able to go from city to city, ports being able to load and unload their cargo. We now realize, wow, we really are stuck with China. And governments and corporations are wisely waking up to that idea and realizing that maybe we need to onshore again. Of course, uh, that then allows those who uh, have a nationalistic bent to say, hey, we have to have it made in made in America or made in England, made in Europe, uh, made in Japan, uh, made in Australia, as if somehow that is a solution to the problem. So we'll probably see a whiplash where it'll go too far and we'll have probably overexpansion and overinvestment in production capacity in, say, the US or in Europe. And then maybe, you know, 15 years after that, it might balance again. But certainly we're in this reshoring or onshoring phase, and it's definitely got a lot of political backing behind it. Tim Culpin there. We're now choosing to end all conversations. Not with you, though. As always, we love to hear from you. I'm at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter, or send your thoughts to vquinn at Bloomberg.net. We're produced by Eric Mollo. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion.